This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. On her new recording, Lara Downs is reconsidering Scott Joplin, who he was and what he did. She says there's a lot more to him than the movie The Sting and the Maple Leaf Rag. He was an incredible innovator who really brought American music into the 20th century. So let's dig deeper into his legacy on this new recording called Reflections, Scott Joplin Reconsidered, with pianist Lara Downs. I'm Julia Macher, and this is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. First of all, I just want to tell you how much I love this recording. It was so, I just sat down yesterday and listened to it from start to finish. And it was, it's so delightful. So many different textures and the arrangements are so interesting. So thank you for the creative effort that you put into that. Thank you. Lara, a year ago, you launched your own record label, Rising Sun Music. Will you talk a little bit about its mission and the goal behind the label, please? Yeah, well, you know, you've known me for a long time and... You've seen me doing my digging in American music and discovering so many truths about it. And one of the truths that has become really clear over the last decade of my life is how much music exists by Black composers that we just haven't known about that's been lost by history. And and one of the big reasons for that is that it was never recorded. So, you know, I'm looking at this growing pile of music on my desk and realizing that as much as I talk about it and as much as I perform it in the concert hall, if this music isn't recorded, it essentially doesn't exist. In order to, you know, resurrect it, to revive it, it needed recordings. So I decided to create this digital hub called Rising Sun Music, which is devoted to recording music by Black composers that has either never been recorded or has been, you know, in the past sort of archivally recorded, that needs that needed new recordings. And one of my big goals with that is connected to radio, you know, that we can shift the balance of what's available over the air so that we all can benefit from, you know, a a clearer, truer understanding of the wealth of American music that exists. So are you saying that this kind of vault of music is not just your music, but it's other people providing music? for it as well or no in terms of other artists yeah like if someone has made a new recording of black composers could they share it with you to be part of the rising sun music vault absolutely yeah i want to um you know so far we've been i've been producing everything in collaboration with a a, an amazing roster of artists and um, my co-producer adam abe's house and i do want to start expanding especially in the realm of orchestral recordings and you know other chamber recordings but yes i i want rising sun to become just you know a home for high quality new recordings of this repertoire so your latest recording called reflections scott joplin reconsidered what is it you're reconsidering about scott joplin who he was and what he did And I think, you know, if we ask 
Man on Street about Scott Joplin, there's one pretty clear answer. Composer of Mabel Leaf Rag and The Entertainer, and there's an association with the movie The Sting from the 1970s. Um, I think there's so much more to know about the music and the man behind the music and just this incredible innovator who really brought American music into the 20th century, who came out of a 19th century tradition, both in European music and American music, classically trained, sort of existing at this crazy crossroads that was the turn of the century where people are moving all over the place and stories are colliding and cultures are, you know, connecting and more or less invented ragtime, which then leads us to jazz and everything else. And so without this music, our 20th century music doesn't exist. I was just thinking of the phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. And he was kind of put into that position. And that is sort of how ragtime came to be. Would you say that's true? I would say that's completely true. And I would say that that is true about most of the Black composers whose work I'm investigating. You know, doors are closed you open your own doors, Um, paths are not available, you forge new paths. And we see this over and over again. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a conundrum because there's a sadness to that. There's a sadness to the opportunities denied. But on the other hand, those opportunities denied led to innovation and, you know, the creation of new, new genres, new ideas, you know, from Scott Joplin to Nina Simone. So I think, I mean, Joplin, yeah, Joplin's a beautiful example. He, he was, a classical composer, a classical pianist. I mean, his first dream was to be a classical pianist. That was not a reality for a young black man in Texarkana at the turn of the century, before the turn of the century. Um, So you go on the road and, you know, you play the music that you are able to play, allowed to play, in this case, ragtime, and ragtime is just beginning. And so Scott Joplin becomes the king of ragtime. (laughs) I love that, though that he is known for that. And it's also interesting to me that when he died at a very young age, ragtime also basically died. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was an incredibly short window, ragtime, as you know, as a musical form and as a national craze. And I think it's so illustrative of the speed of life at that time. Um, so ragtime originates, you know, just before the turn of the century, and it's coming from a mix of things. It's coming from sort of a 19th century parlor tradition, but also, but with the transformative addition of syncopation, which is coming from, you know, the black tradition. And so this new sound is born. And then at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, 27 million people encounter this sound and we all know how much we like syncopation, right? It's like a necessary ingredient. Um, and so, it, you know, it just explodes. And, um, you know, but then by the 19-teens, what's happening? There's this new stuff coming out of New Orleans. You know, there's the, the jazz is is finding its way into our the consciousness. And um, so, you know, it took over. And yeah, by the, by the end of the teens, ragtime was done. Lara, you were learning The Entertainer, along with so many of us after the movie The Sting came out in 1973. I would love for you to share that experience of you seeing that movie and what was that like? What went through your mind as a whatever, six or seven-year-old, and why did you want to learn this music? I've been thinking about this so much. I mean, I loved the movie, 
And the music really spoke to me. I, I kind of think in the same way that it spoke to American audiences in, you know, 1893. Because here I am, this little kid who's really, by that time, even by the age of seven, I was pretty deep into classical music. My my sound world was classical music. So I hear this and it's really exciting. It's really fun. And there was also Paul Newman in the movie. That didn't hurt. <laughs> um, you know. No kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I learned The Entertainer, and I think it was kind of a treat. You know, in my world, it was my, my early training was pretty rigorous. It was a treat. It was like a fun thing I got to play. And then I moved on and left that aside. And uh, came back to Joplin over and over during the years. And I think that it's really clear to me now that this whole journey into American music has just really transformed the way that I hear it and what I understand about it. So it's fun. It's kind of reconnecting with my little girl self, but you know, through a different lens. I love that. I just love imagining you sitting in that theater <laughs> on a weekday in the afternoon. Oh, too. right. Yeah, yeah. So we were homeschooled, um, which was, very loosely interpreted and my mom would really very often take us to um this movie theater in san francisco called the castro theater an art de old art deco theater and they would show these these double header matinees and so we would we would get parked there in the afternoons <laughs> i mean it was an education definitely <laughs> i love it there's an inscription on the title page of the entertainer that sparked an idea for the arrangement you feature on this recording. It's piano and mandolin, a duet. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, it was it was really easy and kind of obvious to me what I wanted to do with many of these pieces, but I will admit that the entertainer kind of posed a problem because we've heard it so many times, you know? And I didn't want to just play another piano version of The Entertainer. And then I realized I'd been looking, I'd, you know, the answer had been literally staring me in the face because the title page of the piece, Joplin dedicates The Entertainer to James Brown and his mandolin club. This was the thing that was really popular at the turn of the century, these mandolin clubs. Um, and so I thought, well, how fun to do this as a duet with mandolin. And uh, so I connected with this great mandolinist named Joseph Brent, Joe Brent, and we recorded a duet. And actually the piece just worked out so beautifully for that because, you know, it's divided into these little two-bar phrases. And so we just kind of tossed them back and forth. I, I, I love the way that kind of evokes Joplin's original intent and kind of something about the sound world of the time and just gives us a fresh interaction with this piece of music. You play these pieces so effortlessly, Lara. I mean, they just flow from your fingertips. Can you share maybe a behind the scenes story of what it was like for you learning some of these rags? Were there any challenges that reared their head as you were trying to work your way through the syncopation. Mm. You know what I think actually, and I'm I'm 
putting out a new edition of the, the pieces on this record through my Rising Sun imprint with Theodore Presser. Um, Joplin's indications in the original publications can be confusing because I think he was anxious about what people would do with this music because it was a new language and he's sending these pieces out into a world where syncopation is new, where people are not used to playing this kind of music on their pianos in their parlors. And so he keeps writing things like, don't play this too fast. And he's really, really specific about, you know, what syncopation is and how you have to do it. And so I think over the years, maybe that's gotten in the way of people just kind of letting the music flow into them and out of them. And so for me, because where I really connect is with his classical roots and then what he did with them. So not like this is classical music, but this is music that's coming from a classical foundation. Like I know what was in his ear when he was a child and I know where he went with it. So all of that, I just kind of had had to put that aside and let my instincts take over. You know, what tempo is this? Oh, let me just like breathe and find the tempo. There's the tempo. What's the phrasing? Just let it come through um, and not get all hung up on these indications, which I think are sort of preventative measures that he's taking so that people don't play the stuff badly. <laughs> I think, though, when you said that, that um, he makes these notations like not to play it too fast, I remember that actually being a real issue <laughs> as a young piano student wanting to play them really fast because it felt more fun. Mm. But they really aren't designed in general to be played that fast, are they? No, there's a sweet spot. And I actually wanted to put metronome markings in the new editions. And I was like, wait, this is 72 again. It's 72 again. Um, because they, there is just this kind of natural place where they flow, but they also groove you know and they also have the energy that they're meant to have i i really feel like that i i don't i don't know exactly where that came from the don't play this too fast um but clearly something was happening that he needed to address <laughs> at the time <laughs> Your producer, Adam Abeshaus, picks up the violin on Elite Syncopations, and that is a really fun duet. Can you talk a little bit about that piece, please? This is the second time that I've convinced Adam to take out the fiddle in the studio. Um, Adam's a great violinist, and, you know, he gets busy with all of his his gear and, and um, equipment when we're recording. But the, um, the Elite Syncopations duet, we kind of just did that it was late in the afternoon on one of our session days and it was just it's always really fun for us to play together the producer musician relationship is such an interesting one i always feel like we're making chamber music at one level you know so when he picks up the violin and we play together it just feels like a continuation of what we've already been doing I'm so glad we got to do that, and I love the little flutters and things that he did on that track. 
方。Chrysanthemum and Bethina were both written for Scott Joplin's wife, Freddie. And the first was to woo her, and the second was to mourn her just 10 weeks into their marriage. Can you share those stories behind those pieces, please? He had a sad life when it came to his personal life and his romantic life. He had he'd been married um, a first time, and that marriage had fallen apart because his infant daughter died and the you know the marriage crumbled and then he met this young woman named Freddie Alexander and was very taken with her and the, he wrote the chrysanthemum as they were courting they were married and she she died of you know really complications from a cold just two months into the marriage. And he was really devastated. And um, he wrote Bethina during that period of mourning. I find that that's such an intimate encounter with his music making because they're two of his most beautiful pieces. Chrysanthemum has this really gentle lyrical sound to it and and in a way it's it's one of the pieces that goes really does go back to the classical influence it starts in this very 19th century vein and then Bethina is just a heartbreaker and you know if you if you know the context if you know where that's coming from it's it just you really feel it deeply about some of your other collaborators on this recording. The Magnetic Rag is really delightful. Who's joining you on that piece? That's the band. <laughs> we put together a band for the album. Um, Kevin Sun on clarinet, uh, Judy Kang and Chiara Fassi on violin, and Tia Allen on viola, and Eve Dharamrash on cello. And these are just great players. I've worked with them in other contexts, and so we pulled everybody together and um, just, you know, had so much fun making making music together. And then the arrangement itself is done by Steve Buck, who I've been working with for several years, um, originally through the project that I have been doing with the baritone Thomas Hampson. And Steve did all of the arrangements for us on that project. And he's just so great at sort of capturing um, mood and color. And that was a really wonderful opportunity with these tunes because what I was hearing in the solo piano versions were colors and textures that I wanted to expand upon. So it was just such a great opportunity to pull in these different instruments and make that happen. And this was his last published work. How does it reflect the possibility of new ideas yet to come? So Joplin's last years were spent in New York and he had come to New York to produce his opera, Trimonitia, which is a whole other story. Um, and 
it's a sad story because he was never able to do it. And that was really the great disappointment of his life and kind of the crashing and burning, I think, of his you know musical vision. So after he had given up on realizing that dream and he was in a, a steep physical decline, he, he was he was suffering from complications from syphilis and his last years were just so difficult. And Magnetic Rag was the last piece that he published. And I think that it has a melancholy to it, certainly, but it's also for me full of the sounds of New York City at that time. which is a place that's just exploding with all kinds of different music, even in terms of the geography of it, the, the, the physical areas of the city that were closely connected where different musical forms and ideas were happening. You, you, you really have to think about the kinds of like cacophony that would have been in the ears of a composer at that time. So in Magnetic Rag, you know, there's this Jewish thing that's happening. And I remember I was sitting and playing it and I was talking to Steve and I said, Steve, there's like a klezmery thing happening here. What can you, can, can we bring a clarinet into this and, and really make that pop? I just, you know, I again, I love the idea of all these people working um, at a time when music is changing so fast and everybody else's music is in your ear and that's changing, you know, what, what you're doing. There is a world premiere recording with baritone Will Liverman, a picture of her face. Where did you find this piece? So this is such a great example of the music that is sitting right there for everyone to find, and we're somehow not finding it. Um, you know, there's this huge um, digital database of of public domain sheet music, IMSLP. We all use it. And I was just going through all the Joplin stuff to make sure there was nothing I was overlooking. And there's this song, an art song called A Picture of Her Face. And lovely little song. And... Um, that same day, I think I was texting with my friend Will Liverman, who's um, an amazing baritone. He was actually, Will was in New York at the time. He was starring in um, the opera Fire Shut Up in My Bones at the Met. And so we were checking in about stuff. He's like, What are you up to? And I said, I'm going to the studio. I'm working on this Joplin project. And he's like, Oh, I love Joplin. Because he, he, Will's also a good pianist. I said, and he said, I love Joplin. I said, did you know that there's a song? And he said, nah. <laughs> so um, I sent it over to him and there we went and we, you know, we found a time to connect and go into the studio. And it's great. It's, it's one of his earliest compositions. One, I think it's from the first collection that he ever published. It's very much a 19th century parlor song. This life is very sad to me, a sorrow fear. Uh, we tried to 
pull it into the present and again just kind of let it be all the things that it wants to be and will has this really really fluid ability he he can sing anything you know from anywhere anytime and i think it just turned into something really beautiful it's kind of a timeless love song and I always have to remind myself that Will is a baritone when I hear him sing <laughs> because he has this uncanny ability to just float those high notes, which he told me actually comes from his church singing days. So he taps into that. Did he talk to you at all about that? Yeah, we just talked about kind of letting all of his abilities have their way with it. But now she's gone beyond recall In a silent tomb she sleeps The one I loved yet best of all Has left me here to weep You know, so yeah, the, those high notes, you know, it's, it's kind of an R&B thing happening and just a comfort. I think there's a comfort it's kind of what we were talking about when it comes to the tempos and the rhythms. Because we are accessing this music from a place a hundred years down the line, you know? So just the same way that Joplin is writing Magnetic Rag and their new sounds filtering into his ear at the time, we are translating this music through everything that we know, everything that we have in our fingers and our voices from our own time and our understanding of history. And I think that's the honest way that's the authentic way for us to interpret music at this point my eyes are off times looking on a picture thought about this, how this was a hundred years ago, because it feels like time has been so warped the last couple years. Uh, is that one of the reasons that you decided to revisit Scott Joplin's music now? I think, I mean, there, there definitely is a centenary thread around a lot of the music that I've been working with. And I think it's significant because I feel like turns of centuries, and I, I say that broadly, I mean, I, th I think we're still in the beginning of this century. They are always um, moments of transformation and kind of escalation and um, what's the word I'm like, acceleration of things. I mean, certainly we've lived through a pretty crazy last 20 years. Um, so I do think that I keep getting thrust back to the reality of what was happening, you know, about a hundred years ago, loosely. And, and it feels very familiar. Eugenia is a rag that, that's new to me, and the recording lists only you playing on this piece. Is that right? Because I'm hearing this plucking sound in there that makes me think somebody else is joining you. <laughs> You're hearing a lot of stuff inside the piano that we put in there. <laughs> um, 
Because I kept saying to Adam, you know, I want to like play around with different sounds and different colors. And he's like, okay, hold on a second. He goes and starts getting all these like rolls of tape and some chains and some stuff. And he's putting it in the piano. And he said, okay, sit down, try it again. <laughs> and it does, it's, you know, it's, it, I think it ends up sounding like maybe one of those saloons where Joplin would have played you know in the 19 teens it's got this really well how would you describe it I don't know it it's um it's a honky-tonk kind of a sound <laughs> That is definitely what I was hearing. And I was kept looking at it going, well, is the mandolin on this one? Why am I hearing this plucking? I got to ask her about that. I thought that was ingenious. So there is it. I didn't see that anywhere, like in the liner notes, you know, talking about that, how you did that, how you recorded that. That would have been fun to have like a little, you know, in parentheses with added percussion inside the piano. <laughs> we should have we should have filmed the recording session, <laughs> but I kind of like it that it's a mystery, actually. <laughs> Maple Leaf Rag features your house band, and this is the rag that changed Joplin's life. It sold a million copies. What do you think it is about this rag that has made it so popular? Isn't it funny how some things are just great? I mean, right? They're just great. And I kept, as I was going through all the rags and, you know, making my choices for the album, I think I kind of kept hoping to be surprised, you know, to find something that was like better than the things that we love. And I don't think I did. I think that the favorites are, you know, they they really have earned their spot. And it's amazing. Maple Leaf Rag just has this infectious energy to it. I don't know if you noticed at the end of that track, but I giggled and Adam left the giggle in because it was just so, we were having so much fun. And I think that, you know, that, that 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 joy to it must have been the thing that propelled it to, you know, this iconic status in 1899. I, I love the band pieces, especially because you, you all do sound like you are just having a blast. It's so much fun. This recording is bookended with music from his opera, Trimonitia. And the opera was not a genre that welcomed Black composers. And let's be honest, there's still a lot of room for growth in that arena now. Tell me about this opera and why did you want to open and close this recording with music from it? So to understand that, we have to go back to the beginning for a second. So Joplin, at the age of 11, starts piano lessons with a German Jewish immigrant who's ended up in Texarkana, who gives him this, you know, really foundational training in European classical music. And that's the love of his musical life. And that stays with him throughout. So he can't pursue the dream of being a classical pianist. And he becomes a ragtime musician and he becomes the best ragtime musician. But the whole time he is writing 
two operas and a ballet, and he does not let go of this love of classical music. And by 1907, he comes to New York with the dream, this really specific vision of writing the first Black American opera. It tells a Black story. It's set in the rural South. It's using the blend of classical symphonic writing that he knows and, you know, pulling in from ragtime. And he knows exactly what he wants to do. And the world's not ready for it. We're not there yet. So it was really important to me to set the record up with music from Trimanisha because I think once you know that, once you hear what he's doing on this very profound, very personal level, you can't hear the rags without that element. You can't divorce those two things. Um, and I think that your experience is sort of just, you know, richer and more authentic because of it. a choir joining you for the last piece. Do you want to introduce us to them? So the last track is the finale, the grand finale from Trimanisha. It's called A Real Slow Drag. In the opera, it's this big, you know, operatic scene with full chorus. And what I wanted to do, as with everything that I'm doing these days, is to make some connection to the future. You know, we're looking back, this is music again, from 100 years ago, we're pulling it into the present. But what are we really doing? We're really setting it up, you know, for life in the future. So I thought one really nice way to do that was to bring in a a choir of children's voices, young voices into this music. So I recorded a real slow drag with the Brooklyn Youth Chorus. And um, I love the sound of it. You know, it has this hopeful, youthful sound. And also it was just such a privilege for me to introduce these kids to Joplin's music and his story, because by the way, kids don't necessarily learn the entertainer anymore. Like this this was ancient history for them. And it was exciting for them once I could position this music in the light of innovation and, you know, sort of genre busting um, musicality. But I I just love to to close this, this record out with I mean, quite literally the sound of the future. How does this music reflect you and who you are, Laura? I think I'm lucky enough to be what Joplin wanted to be. You know, no one's getting in my way of expressing myself in many different ways, in many different genres, of making the music I want to make for the audiences I want to engage. And I think that, again, the great gift that he left us, his legacy is of this courage to try different things, but it was so hard for him. There were so many barriers in place. And I think that those of us, especially artists of color who are living now and 
having the incredible experience of for the first time connecting with our legacy for the first time really you know being able to bring the music of the black artists who came before us to the general public and having that be welcomed but also feeling a freedom to you know walk many many different paths and bring many different ideas together i think it's just important for me on a personal level to really honor everyone who tried to do that before me in is such a more difficult reality what you might have discovered about yourself in putting this recording together that maybe even surprised you? I think, hmm, let me think about that for a second. I think one of the, the things that's becoming really clear since the record came out a few weeks ago is that there's a there's an emotion, a, a really universal emotion for all of us around our, um, um, like, finding the truth and kind of the beautiful truth in our past, in our memories, the stuff we overlooked, right? So we, we, so many of us have this kind of happy memory of the entertainer, but it's very isolated. And I think that to go back to that and re revisit it in the context of a story, this really fascinating story that we didn't know, and where that story sits in the much bigger picture of the music that we know, all kinds of music that we know. It's, there's something really illuminating about it. And I think it extends way past the music. I think it's something about American life and understanding where we come from and the, the opportunities to connect with other people's stories. I'm feeling that really, really strongly in this moment. Reflections, Scott Joplin Reconsidered, a new recording with pianist Laura Downs. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for New Classical Tracks. I'm Julia Macher, and this is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media.